If you have your uh, your bulletin notes, go ahead and pull those out. And uh, kids, you get to hang out with us this morning. We're glad to have you. Who's happy it's a three-day weekend? Anyone besides me? Yeah, I'm pretty pumped about that. <clears throat> All right, if you have uh, if you have an email address, I want you to raise your hand right now. Raise your hand if you have email. Okay, most people in the room. I want to know if um, if any of you in here have ever received an email personally addressed to you from the eldest son of the king of Nigeria asking you to move some money from his kingdom, which is being you know overthrown in some way, shape, or form, and he needs your help, and there's promise of a hefty reward of the fortune if you'll just help him move some money. Anyone ever seen something like that or received something similar to that? Okay, this is a, this is, this is an email scam going back a little ways, right? What's, what's great about these is they, they, they're complete with broken English and foreign sounding titles and, um, honestly, I've seen a few of these and I, I read them, I chuckle, it's a nice little break in my day, and I click delete. How many of you have ever received one of these right here? An Evite of some sort. Evite? Okay, yeah, we've seen that. Um, I just received this last week. Uh, it's about a, a wedding coming up. And um, as you look at the email from the Nigerian son, and you look at the Evite, there's a different response typically, correct? Right? Okay. What are, I'm just, I just want to hear, there's some audience participation here. We need to wake up this morning. We're, we're, like, we're like just going to stretch the three-day weekend into a big sleep session. Why, what, what's the difference in response, first of all? Just fire some things out. What's the difference in response between Nigeria and Evite? Okay, one's an invitation, right? All right. What's, what about your response? How is it, how, how, do, how do they differ between the Nigerian one? Huh? You, okay, you might keep one. Which one do you keep? Duh. Okay, the Evites. All right, what else? Moving forward, as you read it, what is your, what, what is your next action? Maybe you keep it. What do you do with the other one? Okay, you might, re- Reply, right? Not to the Nigerian one. Do, do not reply to the Nigerian one. Okay, let's just make that crystal clear. They're like, Dave said it in church. I thought these were scams, but no, don't reply to the Nigerian son. He's fake, okay? There's different responses to these things, right? Uh, why, now let's move on, okay? We're, we're still, we're still waking up here. Let me ask a more succinct question. Why is the response different? It's not a scam. Which one? The Evite. Okay, the Evite's not a scam. Wendy. Okay, you know who it is. Okay, what else? Now we're getting some. We're warming up here. The coffee's kicking in. Okay, emotional connection. Yeah. Usually you receive an Evite from someone that you know. You look at the two of those, and one you say is legitimate. One you say is illegitimate, right? And there's there's a whole kind of response pattern that, that goes with this. One is ridiculous. One doesn't warrant your response. An evite sometimes might even make you feel honored. Like you go, wow, I got invited to this. That's pretty cool. It begins to spark, you know, your plans and what you're going to do about, about things. Maybe you'd agree with me um, that, that it has to do with your, your belief, right, about these two emails. One you believe to be illegitimate and something that you should stay away from. One you believe warrants your time, effort, thought, and response of some sort. So it is with the invitation of God. If you think about it, people respond to God sometimes in those same similar ways. If someone comes up to someone who is irreligious, unbelieving, and as I've talked to people, I've had people just really honestly, and I really appreciate the blunt honesty, they say, look, the stuff you're telling about Jesus, the cross, the gospel, the good news, God has a wonderful plan for your life, all of that, I put it on par with the Easter bunny, the tooth fairy. So their response, right, will be very similar to the first one. Kind of comical, kind of weird, kind of like, wow, poor, poor people who fall for that kind of a thing. But for others of us, it's, it's much more in line with an Evite, right? Where, where you get a sense that, that God's actually inviting you in and the actions are different. Hebrews 11, 6, I've got it in your notes, it says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In that one verse, we have the word faith and we have the word believe. And this morning, last week, we talked a little bit about some 
uh, doubt and moving beyond that. And this morning, I want to talk about the relationship a little bit with faith and belief and the verses that we're looking at uh, this morning. I want to invite Brittany to come on up uh, to the front. Uh, you got to love this. I just asked Brittany. I said, Brittany, can I pick on you this morning? She goes, sure. Like without me explaining what's going to happen or anything. So give it up for Brittany right now to come on up. And <clears throat> Brittany, it's a good day for a couple of reasons. One is it's a three-day weekend. We all love that. But any time that I can work in my laser pointer to the Sunday morning, it's, it's just a really good day. So um, I haven't busted this out in a long time, but my mother-in-law who bought this for me happens to be visiting, and so it's just an exceptionally good day to break out the laser pointer. Now, you can't peek at my answers. Okay, there's a little contest happening here. Okay. Um, so let me just, uh, we're going we're to give Brittany a little bit of a test here. She misses school. She's bummed at no school on Monday, so we're just going to help her out a little bit. So um, let me ask you this. How, how old are you? 13. And how long have you been using your eyes? 13 years. Good, good. That's, that's, can you keep track? That's, that's, that's one right. Um, okay, so, so you've come to trust your eyes pretty, pretty well. Okay, let me just ask you a question. How many fingers am I holding up? Are you sure? Yes, that's right. Give it up for, give it up for Brittany. Give it up. Okay, good. She, she's like, is that a trick question? Let's try one more. How many? Let's try one more. How many fingers am I holding up? Yes, you got it. You're on a good roll. Okay. I don't want to scare you. Okay. Now, I want you to try and, and look at the screen for a second. Now, um, what letter is that? A. She said A. That's correct. What letter is that? Okay. If you were to try to describe the color of A, how would you describe that? A. A you, you would, oh, I'm sorry. Not the letter itself. The square that it represents. That's an even more precise answer than I was asking for. <laughs> She, she's, she got it. Now I need to wake up. The square that the white A is sitting on, how would you describe that color? Dark. Okay, good. How about B? What's the square that B is sitting on? Okay, so you describe one is dark, one is light. If I were to tell you that both of those are actually the exact same shade of gray, would you believe me or not? Okay, you wouldn't believe me? Okay, in fact, you'd be wrong. Yeah, and I'll, I'll not be able to show it to you until after the service. Let's move on. Uh, don't worry, everyone in the whole room is giving the same answers you are. So you're not crazy, at least on this. Okay, um, let's do another one. Um, if, I were to, if I were to tell you that every single line on this screen is perfectly straight, would you say that's true or false? False? That's what most people in the room would say, and they'd be wrong. Every single line on that page is straight. I will send these to you. I know you're going, Dave's crazy. Put a piece of paper up, put a ruler up, you'll see they're straight. Are you doing okay? You're awesome, Brittany. Okay, here. <laughs> Let's keep going. Um, are you good with geometry? Doesn't really matter. Here we go. Here's A. Okay, I won't ask you about the color. Uh, the distance between A and C and A and B. Which one would you say is shorter and which one would you say is longer? The A and B is shorter than A to C, correct? Okay, that's what we would all think in this room. In fact, they're exactly the same length. But due to perspective and the way those things are drawn, it totally looks like A to B is, in fact, shorter, doesn't it? Now, we're going to have some audience help for you here, okay? Because you've got to answer all these by yourself, right? Does that seem fair? No, that doesn't seem fair at all. Um, are there any engineers in the room? Okay, we've got a few engineers. Okay, the engineers are going to answer this question. Okay, we're going to let you off the hook a little bit. You have to stay up here. Okay, you're kind of representing the engineers right now. They're on your team. It's like Family Feud. All right, this angle right here, okay, the, the CAB angle right there. Uh, let, me just, let me just give you a couple of options and see which one you think is, is correct. Okay, you might look at that and think that it's maybe 45 degrees. Do you like angles? Yeah, it's okay. Um, maybe you'd maybe you'd bump it up to 75 degrees. Maybe because you know this is all a big trick, you'd think maybe it's 90 degrees. Um, let me give you let me give you options to say which which of those or other you think it is. Engineer, come on, fire an answer out to your team. 60 degrees, 90 degrees. Okay. Here's, here's, in fact, what could happen if I decided to walk up there and take the time, which I won't, but I'll email it to you. You can see it yourself. It's greater than 90 degrees. 
And the way you can test that is to take a piece of paper, walk up, and you'll see it easily fits within that angle. Would you please give a hand for Brittany right now? Thank you, Brittany, very much. There's a lovely parting gift called a welcome luncheon after service today. You're welcome to stay for that. Yeah. Um, here's here's the, the point of all that. Here, Brittany's been using her eyes for 13 years, and for the most part, what that shows is how remarkable God has made our eyes and just the ability that we have, for the most part, to, to go through situations, immediately read things, and be able to, to de- determine how to stay safe, how to make a right turn, whatever it might be. But there are some things that people have created to be able to trick our eyes, and they're called optical illusions, right? And so we come along, and we see those things, we go, no way, that's a trip, and it's kind of fun to, to look at that stuff. In fact, there's other kinds of illusions. I want you to just raise your hand if you were born after the year 2000. Okay? If you were born after the year 2000, raise your hand. Okay? A handful of you. I want you to look around. The the rest of you, I want you to look around. Those who aren't raising their hand, you all survived Y2K. Isn't that remarkable? You're survivors. I mean... It brings it, it brings a tear, really. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Y2K survivor, and I just feel so proud of that. Here's why I bring that up. Do you remember the fall, the summer before Y2K? 1999, summer, fall. People were going crazy about this. Newspaper, experts, time, all kinds of magazines and emails, and the world was gonna end. Computer geeks were making a killing off this stuff. They're like, look, I'll save your life, but you gotta pay me. I mean, it's just, it went crazy with this, right? That was an illusion. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was depicting a reality that, that really didn't exist. How about, how about spiritual illusions? Here's some of the big questions that we all have. And this is a, this is a universal truth. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Do my actions matter? Where am I gonna go when I die? Okay, I don't care what culture you live in or where you're from, if you can speak the language and communicate with people, you ask those kinds of questions and people are chewing on this stuff. They're thinking about it. That's because there's, there's more to us than just our, our physical selves that we see. We can't quite grasp all of it. So let's, let's call it in the realm of spirituality. There's, there's religious ways to go about answering these questions, aren't there? There's, there's religious ways to go about saying, here's how I'm going to tackle maybe these big four questions and some other offshoots of it. And the, the religious way is to have the right answers, the right association, right living. It's usually right something, right? And so you, you get it kind of lined up, and then if you have the right ritual and the right heritage and all kinds of stuff, then you're good on this. That's the religious way of going about it. There's also the irreligious way of answering these questions. The irreligious way might be this, going after a God called hedonism, which basically just says, I'm going to do whatever feels good right now. And I'm going to do it, whatever's good for me, that's what, that's what rules the roost for me. Uh, other people that are irreligious go after causes, and they just get super dialed into a cause. Some throw themselves into philosophy, trying to answer some of these bigger questions of life. Some people go after education. I would say, though, both the religious and the irreligious are creating, in essence, a kind of spiritual illusion that is that is manufacturing a reality that doesn't exist. Gary Larson, noted uh, theologian and part-time comic, um, said it this way, and I think I think this is true. It's just this. He captured this idea that sometimes other people's thoughts and feelings and conclusions have a huge impact on us. Here's what the caption of this says: Can you ever get that urge, Frank? It begins with looking down from 50 stories up, thinking about the meaninglessness of life, listening to dark voices deep inside you, and you think, should I? Should I? Should I push someone off? <laughs> I, so, so if you're frank, I mean, it really matters what this guy next to you is thinking. Here's why I bring that up. Everyone is on a search of some sort. Ecclesiastes, I put this in your, in your uh, bulletin notes for you. Chapter 3, verse 10, I think they kind of summarize, kind of put in a succinct way, uh, kind of this, this common human frustration. He says it this way, I have seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men 
yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. That's one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And I think it, I think it in a very short way, kind of succinct way, captures some of the thoughts of that. Enter into this the, the clarity of what God is up to. Look in your uh, Bible or you can look in your uh, notes in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, as we begin to wrap up the book of John, and as this morning we really have these two verses that are central, and we've commented on John 20, 30, and 31 over and over and over as we've gone through this series because John, uniquely to almost any book in the whole Bible, spells out, here's why I'm writing this book. Here's the purpose in me writing this gospel. And we'll read John 20 in just a second. But looking in John chapter 1, look at verse 14. It says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Skip down to verse 16. From the fullness of His grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. Now, for some of you looking at the screen right now, you look at that, you see three random lines like I did. Some of you maybe have made out what that is. But if someone comes along and reveals it to you and says, here's what that is. That is the shadow of the most common letter in the U.S. alphabet. And you look at that and you see and you go, oh, piece of cake. The Bible teaches divine revelation. That means this. Rather than speculation, rather than guesswork, rather than wondering what God is like, all these different answers that we have, why am I here? Where did I come from? Does what I do on this earth really matter? And where am I going to go when I die? We're not left to to guesswork. We're not left to creating our own reality. We're not creating what feels good or kind of fits the most. The Bible teaches it this way. The Bible teaches that unless you are divinely told, unless someone comes and spells it out for you, you will never know. And so that common human frustration in Ecclesiastes, that that eternity has been set in the hearts of people, and yet they cannot fathom what God's doing from start to finish, right? Because we're limited by time and space. God comes along at a certain point. In fact, the Bible says at just the right point in time. And entering into human history is a little baby that claims to be God's son. That ultimately lives a life and dies all the while saying, I'm God's son. I'm here from God. I'm on a rescue mission. And I am the path home to the father. That's called divine revelation. Now, once you see those three lines spelled out for you in that way, it'll be very hard for you to not see that anymore. You look at those three lines and your brain will kind of know, oh yeah, that's an E. So it is with the gospel. Some of us have heard the gospel and we've believed in the gospel and placed our trust in the gospel. And so to hear it, it just clicks, it just fits. We can't even fathom how people can't see it. There's others in this room who maybe have said, yeah, people have tried to show me that E before. I don't get it. I know other people say they get it, but I don't see it. And that's where doubt and faith and mystery and belief all kind of work together. Just kind of by way of review, last week we talked about this, that God often calls us through doubt, but not to doubt. Remember that? And to totally ignore doubt and say, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about doubt. We're not supposed to have doubts and fears in church. Jesus loves me, this I know, that's it. It's to kind of like bury your head and be an ostrich. And we say, we don't want ostriches in church, right? That's not what God calls us to be. Check out and disengage all these faculties and just pretend it doesn't exist. But then there's other people who tend toward the pig side of things, shall we say. And they wallow in their doubt. And, and, and instead of ever taking steps of faith, and instead of ever moving forward in things, they're, they're like pigs that just wallow in the pig slot. And they're actually drawn to just all the questioning that's constantly going on. And they never make any progress or tread anywhere beyond their pigsty. I challenged you last week to get settled on Jesus, the Bible, and the resurrection. And the more I thought about it, the more I would say this. There's really no shortcut to that. For some of you, it's been gifted. It's like God just turns the light on for some people. And they go, I totally get it. 
And they're not being emotional. They're not being flippant. It's not going to go away in six months. They really were just gifted. These eyes to see and a heart to believe. But for many other people, it doesn't come that naturally or easily, does it? And so as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our understanding, I challenge you. And hopefully someone along the line has been challenging you. Get into it. If you have questions, don't stuff them. Come and seek them out. Do the hard work of pursuing it. I love the way the Bible talks about these things. Jesus says, keep seeking and you will what? Find. That's right. Also says in the passage we just looked at that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Not who put a Bible or an apologetics book under their pillow and pray for understanding. But those who are on a search and who go on an earnest search to seek these matters out. And most of you, I'm kind of preaching the choir here because you're sitting in church on a Sunday morning. But most people I bump into, most people I talk to, seem to have precious little time to talk about spiritual matters. And to talk about matters of eternity. And it's hard sometimes to, to go through the effort of finding some of these things out. This week is about belief, but really belief and beyond belief. God chose to give the gospel, this good news, this life-saving message. Think about this. Not by way of proclamation alone. Not by way of a big statement. Not by way of announcement. Or not by way of a simple principle that we all memorize. And once we commit it to memory, we're saved. Instead, God decides to do it this way. He says, I'm going to do it in a person. I'm going, to, I'm going to give a person, it happens to be my only son, and the message is the messenger. We just read this, right? The word, capital word, personified word, became flesh. And so as you look at the gospel, you look at Jesus, and that's our whole point of studying John these last months. <clears throat> Think about it this way. Jesus, as he came... <clears throat> didn't send you an evite. He didn't send you just a letter. Jesus, as he came, he came really as a baby, but ultimately he came to propose to you. And instead of going through maybe the humility or embarrassment in a crowded restaurant to get down on one knee, Jesus got up on a cross, and that was a proposal. And here's what the proposal was. Here it was. Ready? Follow me. That was it. I love the name of our junior high group. Our, our middle school group is called The Following. And Ben loves to explain that to the students. I think most of our students could probably explain what it's all about because Ben talks about it a lot. But it's off of this invitation to follow me, to walk after me. Implicit in that invitation is a, is a love relationship. If you could boil it all down, it's being invited into a relationship. Here's another universal truth of human beings. That is that every single person you bump into was made for relationship. So as you look at someone, realize the person you're looking at, today as we're eating lunch together, as you're, as you're sitting around the dinner table or at your office on Tuesday or whatever, look at that person and realize that person was hardwired. They were designed to be in relationship. Without it, we become sick. Think about the Unabomber, right? Living in some cabin in Montana somewhere. You start to get really sick if you don't have relationship. I would venture to say that eventually without relationship, you get so sick that you die. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, spiritually. There's something that begins to shrivel up and die if you don't have relationship. God's made us that way. Life is being stolen today. And the, and the problem with, with relationships isn't that we need more people, right? There's just not enough people. No, there's plenty of people. But as you think about things and you think about people trying to relate to each other, I like to think about the fact that Facebook and Twitter and MySpace and smartphones and all the things that we have, most of which I use, is this phenomenon is, is occurring. As you look at all that, you kind of see this desperate longing for connection, right? I saw this great image the other day of a guy sitting up on a bluff, and it, it just said the word blog. And it said, never before has have so many people been writing so much to so few people who are even paying attention to it. The idea being this, that with, with Twitter and with Facebook and all these things, you can communicate all that you're doing every second of your day. And people write big, long blogs and have big, long pages. And they're pouring themselves out. And in essence, I'm not, I'm not necessarily slamming all of that. 
But in essence, what I see is kind of this, this inward thing in all of us that says, I matter. My voice matters. Please listen to me. Please read my blog. Please care that I'm brushing my teeth right now. I posted on Facebook for you so that you can know this. Please. And it's this connection. It's like just reaching out for it in some way. I think with all of this, though, all this advancement, so to speak, I think that interaction has been made a lot easier, but intimacy has maybe become harder. I talked with a student this this week, and um, I remember the first time, it was probably near around 2000, I was scared to death of Y2K, and I was in counseling, and no, I'm just kidding. Um, but I was talking to a kid, and he was mentioning, I, I went and picked him up for a Coke or something, I said, hey, what, what were you doing? And he goes, um, oh, I was, I was playing a game with my friend. I'm like, oh, I didn't see your friend. He goes, oh, that's because he's in East Germany. Or not East Germany, he's Germany. <laughs> Am I going back to the 40s? Uh, <laughs> he's in Germany. And I said, I said, he's in Germany. He goes, yeah. He's like, it was an online game. It was some online game. And it was kind of this new phenomenon where, where you, know, you were online gaming with people from around the world. Now, catch this. He didn't say, I was playing with my online friend. I was playing a game with my virtual friend. He just threw it out as natural as could be. Like, I went to the park yesterday with my friend. I was playing a game with my friend. And it was a trip because as I sat there and kind of debriefed with him, he sat there and told me, I said, have you ever met this guy? He's like, of course not. He's in Germany. I said, but you're friends. You know, and I was a little bit worried. And then he began to unpack it for me. And I just thought, man, we're on the dawn of a new era where your friends don't necessarily have to be right here. In fact, I've noticed another phenomenon. I don't know if this bugs you or not, but, um, but sometimes you'll be engaged in a conversation. I'll say, Michael, you just look really sharp today. And then Michael says, oh, hey, cool. I go, how are you doing, Michael? He goes, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And I go, tell me about your day. And you tell me. And I whip out, pretend this is an iPhone, smartphone, whatever. I whip out and go, yeah, cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, and I'm texting away or I'm, I'm Twittering or whatever I might be doing. And here's what's so bizarre about that. Once in a while, um, I've been known to just do this. I just stop mid-sentence and I just stop and wait and just look at the person. It's, it's actually quite bizarre because in a way, it's almost like I want to be intimate with everyone except who's right in front of my face. And I've actually noticed this in youth ministry that for some people, face-to-face is really, really challenging. And it's very hard to build up intimacy with someone because that's intimidating or it's weird or I, I can't think of my feet or whatever else. But you get them in a conversation online with something and all of a sudden they open up. So there's, there's, there was ministry value to that. But I also thought as a youth pastor and as I talked to parents, I said, man, we need to be training up a generation of how to look someone in the eye and have a conversation with them and really realize, man, I'm, I'm in the very presence of someone right now. Let's, let's put on hold some of the other interactions that I'm, that I'm doing. And can't you see that if I was trying to build intimacy with my wife, all the while texting everyone else, it might send a weird message to my wife. It may send a message. I mean, just maybe I'm reaching here. But you're not as important as my myriad of fans who care that right now I'm talking to my wife. I just thought all my fans would want to know that. She seems to be kind of mad at me. Her face is frowning. I mean, it's like, you know, and all the while my wife would just say, just talk to me. I mean, I just want interaction here. So then I began to to think about this and wonder, now we're talking about building intimacy and relationship with God. And we're talking about moving from belief, which is a starting point, on into faith and following me and really wondering what that looks like. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundant. And the simple how is to follow me, is to walk with me. The fact that Christianity was built and continues to find its foundation in a person and not propositions is is true as you read through the Gospel of John. As you read through it, you see different things. And as churches and as church leaders and through church ages, we've built up good, solid doctrine. We've built up good, solid theology. And here's the problem you can suddenly find yourself answering some of the big questions in life with that religious mindset if you miss the person while you're going after the point of things. And you've categorized stuff so much that that you forgot this relationship that you're in. We're not in a relationship with a book. Can I get an amen on that? 
Now, has God revealed himself? Do we love, do we love studying the Bible and looking at it? Absolutely. But the book serves Christ. Doctrine serves Christ. Theology serves Christ. So if we've missed being in relationship with Christ, the second I put more time into studying here and stop being in relationship with my Savior is the day that this church and my preaching begins to lose power. Because we're in a relationship with Christ, and that's what it's about. John says it this way, and if you're in John chapter 20, you can follow along, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John calls for a decision. The whole gospel is calling for belief. It's calling for a decision, in fact. I want you to write this down in your notes. If you were to take the word belief, you could write it something like this. It's the idea of admitting or accepting something as true. And it's clear from scriptures that belief is essential to our salvation and a normal necessary part of every person in the family of God. Mark 16, 16 says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Do you see what's differentiating between those who are saved and condemned? What is it? Belief, right? Those who are believed and baptized are saved. Those who are not believed are condemned. So if you're a universalist and you say, that doesn't really matter, that's inaccurate according to Jesus. Belief is essential to our life in Christ. However, the whole point of today is not just stopping at belief. God invites you on from the point of belief to faith. And if I could put faith in some words, it might be this. Committed action to what is accepted as true. Now, the interplay between belief and faith is very tricky and challenging. And I don't want to make too big of a distinction with it. Oftentimes, you'll find me maybe using it somewhat interchangeably. But belief is sort of this starting point, And faith is this idea of, I don't just believe it, but I have faith in it, and I'm going to actually take committed action. I'm going to move in that direction and place my my faith in it. Note that belief in God really only qualifies you to the level of demons. You can look that up in James chapter 2, verse 19. Demons believe that Jesus was the Son of God and was the Christ. So to just be a believer, in a very technical sense, means, oh good, so you're on board with all the demons then, because you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And yet we're called to do something more than demons, right? We're called to have faith in a a different kind of way than demons. Believing God is walking by faith and is a whole different lifestyle. You're not going to get all of these, but you might get some if you write fast. Here's what a life of faith looks like. You ready? Romans chapter 1 verse 17 says we're to live by faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says we're to stand firm in our faith. Acts 14, 22 says we're to continue in faith. Romans 4, 20 through 24 says that we're to be strong in faith. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says abound in faith. 1 Timothy 1, 19 says keep the faith. And finally, 2 Timothy 1, 1 says have assurance of your faith. Is faith an important, necessary part of walking with God? Absolutely. Remove faith, and you remove a walk with God. Philip Yancey, in his book, Reaching for the Invisible God, says this, As for faith, it will always mean believing in what cannot be proven, committing to that which can never be sure. A person who lives in faith must proceed on incomplete evidence. And I love this, trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Think about some of your Old Testament heroes. God calling Abram. Get up and go. Where, Lord? He doesn't tell him. Ah, it's not there. Pretend there's a maze next to that quote. If you start into a maze and you believe that someone can see above you and is directing you, and even though the walls are high and you can't possibly know the right way to go, if you trust that person, if you have faith in them, then when they say turn right, even though that looks like a dead end or it looks like any other decision, you turn right. And the heroes of the Old Testament... The heroes of faith, they did this. They followed God on incomplete evidence, on incomplete answers. 
You and I are no different. Some of you this morning might be in the, the darkness of despair. Maybe you're really reeling in doubt. And you're sitting in here hoping to find some answers. I'm glad you're here in church. That's a good place to be. I'm glad you're looking to the scriptures. That's a good start. Sometimes God is hard to get, isn't he? He doesn't just kind of take all that he knows about it, put it on a table and set it out for us, and then kind of stand back like this and wait for people to to make a decision. That's not the way God seems to work. I've never really seen God do it that way. Here's more the way that he seems to work. It's almost as if in some ways he kind of parcels out truth in his timing and in his wisdom. And he gives you a piece of it. And then he allows you to go on a search for it. And then he gives you a little bit more to the puzzle. And then you search some more. And then there's another little thing that as you start to put these together, you start to look back and go, wait a minute. I just so happened to be talking to that person two years ago. And and, and then this circumstance just so happened to go on. And then this news article that really started to cause doubt actually confirmed some things that I'd read in the Bible. And then this person came along, and then this circumstance, and you begin to see this, this sort of mosaic picture form behind you as you look at it. And it's powerful to see that God's been there all along, showing you things. Listen to these scriptures, Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, to search out a matter, is, is, is the glory of kings. I love the way Emily Dickinson put it. She says, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. And there's a certain sense in our walk with God that we go, why, Lord? I want more. Give me more of the answers. Just write it across the sky. Why didn't you do any of that? The longer I've been on a faith walk, the more I started to realize the power and the development that goes on in not having it given all at once like that. Take the book of Job. God has the perfect opportunity at the end of Job to address the problem of suffering and evil. We, the reader, get to see behind the scenes and know what's going on. Does he answer Job's questions? No. He fires a ton of questions back. Where were you, Job, when the foundations were laid? By the way, where do I store up all that's you know done in a snowstorm? He just starts asking questions. And rather than, than finally spell it out for Job, He leads Job on because he doesn't want just belief. He wants Job to continue to walk in faith. Another man said it this way. Truth, like love and sleep, resents approaches which are too direct. Don't don't we see this same idea with Christ? As we've looked at the son going through life, we see this sort of thing. He told stories when people wanted specifics, right? Parables is what we call them. But he would just tell a story. They'd ask a question, he'd reach down and pick up a little seed and start looking at it. We don't know the exact timing of things, but I bet he had perfect timing. And so he'd sit there and start telling a story. His own disciples didn't get it half the time. He seemed to live his story more than he talked about it. He, he was the kingdom of God come to earth. And sure, he told about it and gave things, but he sure lived it more than he talked about it. He never seemed to give interviewers straight answers. More often than not, Jesus seemed to put questions back on people. They would come to him with a question, oftentimes trying to trap him, and he would fire a question back at him. Sometimes he'd fire back a question that would almost put words into their mouth, in fact. It's pretty ingenious the way he does it. But rarely does he just answer directly what the question was. Instead of maps and charts, Jesus left signs and markers. And I'd venture to say this, in some ways, as you read the gospel, and this is shocking to some people, but it's true, I think, that in some ways, Jesus made it harder to believe then easier. As soon as a large crowd would come, he'd almost draw a line in the sand and say, um, hey, you want to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Step across the line. And disciples were constantly coming alongside and saying, kind of bad for the PR machine. You know, your, your message branding is just falling apart with that one. And Jesus knew what he was doing. He kept drawing lines in the sand and calling people beyond. Why? Here's why. He wasn't calling for you to admit something to be true. He was calling for commitment, wasn't he? He wasn't calling just in belief. I assent that that is true. Yes, that's true. He was calling for people to walk up after him, not just talk about him. He was calling for commitment. He was calling for action. God isn't just hard to figure out when I think about my life. As I read the Bible... 
from cover to cover and you look at the stories and you look at the people in it, here's another very mysterious thing about God. It's the heroes that God chooses to, to kind of lift up and highlight. Let me just give you a couple. By the way, any human editor to the, to the Bible would surely have cut out many of the things I'm about to read, okay? This is like an expose on the Bible. Here we go. Buckle up. Take lying, conniving Jacob. Does anyone else question this whole scenario with Jacob? Some of you may not know some of these stories. That's your homework. That's your devotional time for this week, is to go just write Jacob down, and you can find out about him. God blesses all this stuff that Jacob does. Meanwhile, his mother, Rebecca is an accomplice to the whole scenario, and it's all quite shady, and God seems to be blessing it. Take Gideon. Gideon's got this great story. And I think if you had a human author, a human editor to the story of, of Gideon, it would end right after this victory and his bold refusal to be their earthly king. Cut! That's a great story. Go to print. What does Gideon do right after doing that very courageous, right in line with God thing? Here's what he does. He goes and he makes an altar... And it says all of Israel played the harlot with that altar now. He goes and does the complete wrong thing. That's one of the heroes that God uses. Judges 8, 23 to 27. You can look that one up. I'll just blitz through a few more. The nakedness of Noah, the lust of Samson, the impatience of Moses, the compromise of Saul, the self-righteousness of Job, the denial of Peter, the defection of John Mark, Peter and Paul, two of our biggest heroes, arguing, right? Being pretty bullheaded, frankly, about certain things. And as we looked at just a little bit ago, the doubting of Thomas. And yet in all of this, I wanted you to see this quote from John Fisher from a book called 12 Steps for Recovering Pharisees Like Me. He says this, All of their stories make faith real and possible for every one of us because we see ourselves or parts of ourselves between their pages. They are stories of doubt and faith, of struggle and release, of pain and pleasure, of victory and defeat. Most of all, they are stories that read like our lives and give us courage, not because they are about great people whom we admire, but underline this part, because they are about an ordinary people who have a great God. That's the story of this church. That's the story of every believer is a very ordinary person who has a great God. And I look at it and say, God, can you really use a screw-up like that in the Bible to accomplish your will? Then thank you for showing that and recording that for me to read so I can feel like maybe God has a purpose for me. Maybe God's got a use for me in this kingdom. I want to close with this idea of what if I doubt? Last week, I was calling you on from the shadows of doubt. Shadows can cast a really long, uh, doubt can cast really long shadows, can't they? They can be really frustrating and dry periods of time. I want to just give you a couple of don'ts. One is don't despair. Know that you're, you're not alone. Acts 27, or Acts 17, 27 reminds us that God is not far from each one of us. So if you're in doubt, We're going to be starting up some new community groups here in just a few weeks. That is a great place to bring your doubts. Don't feel like you're coming and dumping on people because you've got doubts and questions. And please don't come and play along. Please don't come and just kind of nod your head and give, give verbal assent to things when in your heart you're like, this is totally bogus. I've never seen one shred of evidence that this is true. We have a faith that is, as one author put it a long time ago, a great apologist, is reasonable. It's not airtight and locked solid where you just go, just show me one plus one equals two and I'll do it. It's not like that. That's not the way God offered it to us. It's in relationship. But please come and and bring those. Here's the second thing, and that is don't relax. If you're in the midst of doubt, don't relax. Don't just hang out there. There's a real enemy, and there's a real snare, and there's real spiritual life and death issues here at stake. So with some intensity, get out of it. Don't just relax and soak in it. James 1, 2 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, 
Whenever you face trials of many kinds, circle many kinds in your notes, even spiritual ones, even spiritual trials are really good for you at times. Here's why. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops or produces perseverance. It's all part of our growth process. Be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, who it says, examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And catch this. Many of them, therefore, because of their study, because of their research, because not just taking things at face value and letting other people do the research and the hard work for you. Because they went and searched the scriptures, many, therefore, believed and began a walk with Christ, began a a life of faith. I want to invite the band to come on up, and we're going to be singing a, a couple of songs as we close. As we sing, I want to put out a call, just like John would do. I think that's what these two verses are about. It's a call to believe. It's a call to start your faith walk with Christ. A simple path to God would read something like this. This is all out of John chapter 1, by the way. We are born into a world that is dark, hopeless, and without hope. By nature, we reject God. The Bible teaches that sin is not a series of bad choices, but a state of being from which bad choices continually come. You might think of it like a sickness that we're born with. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God and was sent to rescue us and then lead us home. And thirdly, we're to reach up and receive the hand of rescue that Jesus offers. Believe that trusting in Him, this simple path to God that a child can understand, believe that that is the path home. Believe that that's the path to forgiveness. With that belief comes this childlike faith. It's a call for childlike faith to follow me. And as you think about children, you think about how they interact, I would, I would challenge you, go spend some time with kids this week. It's a good part of your quiet time to just be around kids and interact with them. If you're a preschool teacher, you say, no thanks, I've do enough of that. But maybe more of us could use time really thinking at their level. My daughter, Briley, when she was four years old, she asked me a question one time while I was tucking her in. She said this, she said, Daddy, <clears throat> who prays for Jesus? You know what was in that question? Care and concern for Jesus. Not what can I get from Jesus. Not Jesus, I hope that. Not Jesus, give me. It was saying, who prays for Jesus? We always pray to him. And I just thought, man, that just undid me. When have I ever prayed and asked about Jesus that way? Kids have a way sometimes, and you think childlike faith is something unsophisticated or not for 2009. I think it's perfect for 2009, and I think it's universal. Right before we go to sing, let me point out a couple things more things children think about. Children tell God what they really think. It's simple. It's direct, it's very unpolitically correct, and it's precious. I would challenge you to do the same. If you're doubting during these next few songs, don't sing my offering at the top of your lungs and force out a, a tear or two. Don't sing. Wouldn't that be a refreshing thing, to not sing in church? Because you're not going with it. You don't, even, you don't even sense that at all. Use the time instead to tell God, unpretentiously and directly, God, I I wish I believed like these people around me seem to believe, but I don't. Tell them what you think. Children don't let their vocabulary or lack of it get in the way of their prayers. You do the same. Don't worry about impressing God with that. In fact, you don't even need to always put words to it, do you? Pray without ceasing. I don't know how to do that without being committed to a funny farm unless we're allowed to pray without using actual words. There's even parts of the Bible that talk about groanings that are too deep for words. We can't even formulate it into words. And yet you can communicate and talk to the Father. Children are not afraid to cry out or even express doubt. Most of my kids, many of my kids as we pray, they pray in this type of way. I hope that. It doesn't sound as theologically correct for pastor's kids to say that as far as I firmly believe that as I ask this. They just pray what they say. I, I hope that. Do the same. And lastly, to children, a call for help 
is a proud expression of their dependence on those who love them. My kids are not self-conscious about reaching out for help. Praise God for that. In fact, they, they have a problem. They boldly cry it out, super loud, in fact. And the whole house can hear it. And you know what? I think sometimes in church we're pretty self-conscious, aren't we? We're dying and we need help. But instead of crying out to God for it, we suppress it and think, once again, I'm not a very good Christian. I'm not like these other people. As the band starts to play, let me say a word of prayer and we'll get to some singing. God, I thank you that you are not concerned today with our incredible knowledge or the fact that we can quote our doctrine statement in Latin. But Father, what you're longing for are those who are following you. And God, we're a people who are desperately in need today. We look pretty good on the outside. Our families look fairly well put together. But God, we need a Savior today as much as the day that we first believed. And so God, help us not to linger just with belief and be content with that. Help us to go deeper and dig into what it looks like to really follow you every day of our life. And we need help with that, God. Help us to grow in our comfort of moving forward even though we don't have every last thing in place. For those whose faith this morning is wavering, would you bring compassionate, understanding, and biblically wise people that will come alongside and walk with them to and through the answers that are there. And when we come up against mystery, when we come up against things we don't comprehend, help us not to fear it, but to celebrate it. Realizing we are in fact not God. There's something way bigger than our brains can handle going on here. And God, as we bring ourselves this morning in worship once again, we pray that we would do so with pure motives and with childlike faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.